Today I want uh, each one of us to give a clear answer to a question, a simple question. And the question is, what is the church? What is the church? Now, I know some of you are already thinking, oh, well, now is a good time uh, for me to write down what I need to do on Monday uh, at work uh, because the pastor is telling us the obvious. We know what the church is. Uh, and of course, some of you are saying now is a good time for me to have a nap, as it were. Well, to borrow from Prime Minister Boris Johnson, that would be an extraordinary mistake, right? In my experience, simple questions are often the most difficult questions to answer. Uh, children ask us so many simple questions. And uh, if, you've been, if you've got a kid and you just ask, he or she asks you a question, it's hard to answer that question. They're so simple, they're so straightforward. But try and give them an answer and explain to them, it's not that simple, it, uh, it can be complicated. I'm reminded that the general election, of course, is on its way soon if the prime minister has his way. And one of the most popular questions the media likes to ask government ministers when they are on the campaign trail is a very simple question. How much is the price of milk? How much is the price of milk? Something we use every day, right? And of course, few of us know the price of milk. Well, when we go to Sainsbury, we just pick it up and we put it in. We need milk, we don't really think about the price that much. Sadly, of course, for ministers, when they ask that question, uh, they, well, if they don't give the right answer, to know the price of milk, not knowing it, well, it shows they're out of touch. Uh, in the same way, I am guessing if I go around this room and ask, what is the church? Uh, all of us are likely to give different answers. It sounds simple, but actually, you're likely to give different answers. And of course, that is to be expected to, to some degree, because you see, the church is like a, how do I describe it? It's like a beautiful diamond. Right? And when you look at this diamond, and if you turn it, you see different things. You, you're looking at the same beauty, but from different vantage points. And so it comes as no surprise that when we open the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, we find that the Bible actually itself describes the church in different ways. And this morning, what I want to do is to look at what the Bible teaches us about the glorious beauty of the church from the first letter of first Peter. Now, if you have read through Peter and you studied it with us, you know that Peter himself uses many different images to describe the church. Uh, for example, in the first chapter of Peter, first Peter, the church is described as a new loving family. We read this in first Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. It says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since what? You have been born again. You are new children of God, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So one image in Peter is that the church is a family made up of spiritual brothers and sisters. No grandchildren, just brothers and sisters. In chapter 2, Peter describes the church, for a passage you look at this evening, as a new race of people within a new nation set apart by God to showcase his glory. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen race. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. In chapter 4, the church is described as a new household of God that is being purified from the finest of suffering and persecution. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. And if it begins with us, we are the house of God, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In chapter 4, in chapter 5, sorry, Peter goes on to say the church actually is the sheep or the flock of God that is being cared for by Jesus as our chief shepherd through his elders. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 2 says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd what? Shepherd the flock of God. And if Brother Rob was here, he would say, we are a fellow sheep, he likes to call us, doesn't he? Because we are the flock of God. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So we see there are all these different images the Bible uses. We can study them if you just have a good systematic study today of all these different images. But what I want to do today is to focus on what Peter has to tell us. One more thing he has to tell us. In fact, two more things as we'll see this evening. But one more thing this morning about what the church is by looking at chapter 2, verse 4 to 6. I'll just read those verses again. This is how Peter describes the church in chapter 2, verse 4 to 6. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a what? A spiritual house or home to be a holy priesthood. That's another description, by the way. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, in the Word of God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I just want to share three truths we see in this passage about what the church is, as, that we need to remember as we celebrate our church anniversary. And the first truth we see here is that the church is a new home built by God in Christ. It is a new home built by God in Christ. That's our first point. Now, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia has an ongoing project to build the world's tallest building. It used to be called the Kingdom Tower, but now they are calling it the Jeddah Tower. It is meant to be over one kilometer in height. That's long, isn't it? And according to the owners of the project, uh, it will be a landmark building that will clearly demonstrate to the world the ambitions of Saudi Arabia. 
Sadly, for all their bold claims, the project is currently struggling, actually. In 2009, uh, they had to pause it because of the global financial crisis. They ran out of uh, petrodollars, so they paused it. In 2017, they paused it again because of high labor costs. Um, Saudi Arabia was tightening up on its labor uh, laws, and that raised the costs for the project. Now, this year, it has been struggling because of design issues. There are huge problems building something so high, and there are real doubts whether they will actually accomplish it. Like the Saudi princess, God is also building a wonderful project. It is like nothing the world has ever seen. And this project is called the Church of God, us. But unlike the Jeddah Tower, there is no doubt about the future, the future of this project. There are no design issues to worry about. God will do this work. The project will be finished because the building of the church does not depend on any human being. It depends on God and God alone. As somebody told me recently, the church is a God thing. It is not a man thing. It has been designed by God. And it is being built by God on a very strong foundation. And the foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at those verses again. Look at verse 4. It says that you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are living stones are doing, are doing what? Being built up as a spiritual house. Verse 6, notice what it says. For it stands in scripture, behold, I, that is God, laying, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, will not be put to shame. God is building on the church, building the church on Jesus as the cornerstone. Now on 16th of April, the people of Paris saw something they never thought they would ever see in their lifetime. What was it? They saw a huge plume of smoke rising from the center of Paris, didn't they? Right? And soon every news television station around the world was reporting that a fire had engulfed uh, the 850-year-old medieval cathedral of the Notre Dame. And within a few hours, uh, the building's uh, spire and roof collapsed. Get in. And many people, many of us who are watching this, believe that actually this was the end. The, 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 the Notre Dame was finished now. But all of us missed a crucial fact. The media missed it. The fact they missed is that the medieval architects, those geniuses in the Middle Ages who loved building Gothic things, had made sure that the Notre Dame had two roofs. It didn't have one, it had two. One roof on top of the Notre Dame was made of 800-year-old wood, right? But beneath the wood, there was another one made of stone, 800-year-old stone, supported by these um, stone vaults and columns that hold the building together. And these stone vaults, if you like, 
were able to withstand the barrage of millions of pounds of burning wood and modern lead. And in the end, no matter how much the building burned, the Notre Dame was able to stand still. And it still stands strong. Because actually the whole thing really is stone. You see, a building is only as good as the frame that holds it together. And in New Testament times, buildings were held together by large stones at the corner of the buildings. They were called cornerstones. And these large cornerstones, if you like, provided stability and the orientation to the rest of the building. Everything depended on the cornerstone. And Peter here in these verses is saying, followers of Jesus are living stones of a house that God is building on Jesus as the living cornerstone who holds it together. Jesus holds the church together. You yourselves in verse 5, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Where are we built up? Well, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Peter here wants us to imagine uh, a building made up of um, so many precious stones, sparkling stones, right? That God has chosen for himself. And God is there on the side, if you like, as a divine bricklayer. And he's taking these stones and he's building stone upon stone, right? And now these stones, they are alive, right? They, they are alive. A bit like, uh, I can't use that example, I guess. But in a lot of the rings, you've got all these stones, things walking around and they're talking. But something better, right? Sparkling stones that are alive and they, they are living. And they are alive because, you see, these stones are God, as he connects these stones, they are being connected. When he takes them out to put them there, they are not alive. They are dead stones. But the moment they are attached to a living stone, Jesus himself, who is alive, who has risen from the dead, the stones, of course, become alive. They are now made precious. And this thing that God is building in the church is uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful to look at. It's precious in his sight. Oh, sparkling stones. That's the church. Now, now, it's not finished. Because you notice here, it says God is building, isn't it? His building are being built up. In other words, the project of the church continues. God is still choosing stones. He's still putting them on top of the cornerstone. And the house of God is still being built up around the world. God is still in the business of drawing sinners to himself. And one of the questions you have to ask yourself this morning is that, are you part of this great building that God is building? Are you one of these precious stones that God has drawn to himself? We have to ask ourselves that. Because the church, the church, beloved, is a new home built by God in Christ. Designed by God himself. And built on Jesus as our living, precious, and chosen cornerstone. Now, as we celebrate our long history as a church, I think the Bible here is reminding us that this church is not here because of all the people I read about, you know, Mr. Friff and uh, 
Pastor Sheehan and others, that they contributed, but it's not here because of me, because of anyone else. The church is here because it is God himself who builds his church. It is not built by human ingenuity. This is not cross rail, you know. This is God's work. And that should comfort us because it means that as a church we are part of the work of God and God will continue building his church here in Bethlehem as long as God wants it to be built. So we should always come to every every ambassador with confidence, with trust in God himself as the great architect of his church. But I think this truth also should humble us. It should humble us because, you see, as we go forward, every church in history, every church in history has faced one temptation. And the temptation every church has faced is to forget who the builder is. You see, everyone sat here as a vision of what this church should be. Right? Of what our fellowship should be. Some of you want this fellowship just to have lots of young people. Ah, you have to serve the young people. That would be wonderful. The future of the church is secure. Some of you want this church to be full of families. Yeah, you, you've got a family yourself, and you want to see other families. And you're praying God sends more family, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But you have a vision of the church, this church, as a family church. I used to be part of a church where some of the people who were there wanted the church to remain small. So every time we have a members meeting, they were like, why are we interested in expanding the church? My family has always attended this church. It's always been a small church, Chola. Why are you interested in evangelism? A lady told me that. So some people's vision of the church is to be small. And, and there are some benefits to having a small church. I'll leave you to think what those are. But some people, even in this fellowship, would want this church to remain small. Some people would want this church and I'll put myself in this category, for this church to do more to reach Asians in, uh, in Bexley Heath. There are Asians in Bexley Heath, and, 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 and then we should do more to reach them. Uh, some, some people like us are like that. I'm very passionate about Eastern Europeans. I just love Eastern Europeans. I don't know why. I've never been to Eastern Europe. But I'm passionate that this church should do more, you know, to, to reach Eastern Europeans and, with the gospel. And, and so we have those desires. Other people uh, would want this church perhaps to do more to win North Africans. Uh, some people in this church would want more, this church to do more to win white working class. They are left behind generation, I think, biblically in this country. Many of them don't go to church. And as a church, there are people who have a passion for that. And of course I meet people and I hear about people that would want this church perhaps to be more diverse. Pastor, I came to this church because I want more diversity in our church. Now, I'm not here to criticize any of these ideas, right? But I think the Bible is criticizing these ideas. And what the Bible is telling us here is that be careful that you do not impose your vision on the church. By all means, let us have a passion to reach certain groups. But the Bible is warning us that you must let God build his church. It's not yours. And it's certainly not 
Mine either. It is his church. God is the quantity surveyor. He is the bricklayer. He is the plasterer as it were. He is the workman. It is all of it from A to Z. It is his church. You and I are just a stone. We are not the bricklayer. If you're truly converted, you are just a stone. And dare I say, as we look at this scripture, it doesn't say white stone. It doesn't say black stone. It does not say Asian stone. It doesn't say young stone. It doesn't say old stone. It says living stones. Precious. Chosen. And our vision, our vision, our approach as a church if you're truly converted, that is, I always put that big if. If you're truly converted, your desire is to see God build his church with his method, at his own time, at his pace, and in his home. Your responsibility is to offer yourself up to God. To share the gospel with whoever God has placed in your midst. You know, I was thinking to myself this past week. Why have I become so taken in with planning for the funeral? I was asking myself. Why has been planning the funeral just consumed me? It's been on my mind. I thought much about Sister Christine. Why? I was trying to think that. And then I came to this passage. This is why. You yourselves, like living stones. Like living stones. Because a dear sister who passed away is a living stone. Not a Ghanaian stone. Not a British stone. A living stone. And as long as she's a living stone, we as a church have a responsibility, therefore, to bury her in a way that honors the grand architect, God himself. Because he's the one who has placed us, who placed her here. So you see, our responsibility is, 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 is to look at the church as God himself sees the church. We must live behind our ideas of what the church is and allow God to do his work. And we must live behind any silly gimmicks. You know, holding a helter-skelter. All these silly things that people do to attract people in the church. We must work with God to build the church with the instrument, the word of God that he has placed in the responsibility, given us to do. God's church, his way. That should be the way we go about things. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, do you believe that God is the one who builds his church? You need to seriously ask yourself that. Because first of all, if you don't believe that, then this church clearly is not the church for you. Because this church will be built by God and God alone. The other thing is that if you need to ask yourself this question because no matter the answer you give, 
it will be reflected by your own. How do you actually live in practice, right? We may say we believe God is the actor, but does the way we live show that? You see, Dallas Willard says our beliefs are the rails upon which our life runs. Our beliefs are the rails upon which our life runs. In other words, what you believe has consequences for how you live. And those who believe God is building his church show it. How do they show it? They show it in their behavior by praying and looking to God. Prayer is the only response. Once I figure out that God is the one building this church, I spend less time on the sermons and more on talking to God. Less time on preparing the sermons, of course, because you need to preach. Less time on preparing the sermons and more on talking to God to tell me what I need to say from his word. Prayer is the only response. Prayer and the word is the only response. And as a church, as we think about the next year, we want God to build us up as a church. How do we do that? Well, let's prioritize meeting together for prayer and being around his world. You may say you believe God builds the church, but frankly, if you are not taking every opportunity to be here when we are praying together, you are taking opportunity to be here to study the word of God morning and evening, well... So midweek when you can, for those who don't work during that time, then it shows that, in, yes, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So let us ask God to help us to truly believe this and apply it to our lives. That's the first truth. The church is a new home built by God in Christ. The second truth we learn here is that the church is a new home built for God to live in. You know, in our Western society, the, the image of the church, that people have of the church is the one which has been popularized by the character from The Simpsons, uh, the Reverend Timothy Lovejoy. For those of you who watch Simpsons, you may remember the Reverend Timothy Lovejoy from there. You know, when he arrived in Springfield, he was very eager and enthusiastic as a pastor of, uh, of, spring, of the I think it's the First Presbyterian Church, Springfield. But soon he became cynical and disillusioned about his Christian calling. And when you watch The Simpsons, he gets frustrated when Ned Flanders constantly pesters him with minor issues such as coveting his own wife. <laughs> you know, Ned Flanders comes up with all sorts of things that he thinks he's sinning, uh, coveting his own wife. So uh, he, would, um, he would go to the Reverend Lovejoy for, for, for advice on these issues. But we know that the Reverend Lovejoy prefers playing with his model trains. That's what he does, right? Uh, he has even suggested to Ned, uh, Ned Flanders to join another religion because according to him, we are all just pretty much the same, right? When we think about Timothy Lovejoy, we realize that he's a hypocrite. The church to him is simply a club for helping one another. And his church is basically an exercise in utility. And when the public watches that, they, that's how their image of the church is. Their image of the church is that if God exists, well, he's very absent from the church. But Peter here tells us the opposite, doesn't he? He says God is building his church for himself to live in. He is dwelling with us today and forever. Let's look at verse 6 there again. For it stands in scripture, Peter says. He's quoting Isaiah here. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, 
chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And the Zion Peter is mentioning here was a Zion which was built by King David in Jerusalem. We can read about it in 2 Samuel 5 verse 7. Uh, it was intended for the kings of Israel. Right? Uh, when God made a covenant with King David, uh, he promised to establish David forever. Right? And the, one of the things that God says is that your descendant who sit on this throne will reign forever. If you like, this king would be an eternal king of Zion, who will rule not just over Israel, we read about particularly in Psalm 2, but he will rule as the eternal son, as his appointed son. And David wrote about this, Psalm 2, if you turn to Psalm 2, verse 6 to 9, it says this, Psalm 2, verse 6 to 9 says this, As for me, that's David speaking, well, as this is God speaking, but David writing, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. This will be a king who will rule the world. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And later on in the Psalms, if you skip over to Psalm 9, verse 11, King David tells us the new king of Zion actually will be God himself coming to reign, sitting on the throne of David. Uh, Psalm 9, verse 11 says this, Sing praises to the Lord, who does what? Who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the, the peoples his deeds. And so when we flip back to 1 Peter, we see that what Peter is telling us here is that the king of Zion has arrived. God has chosen his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the chief cornerstone of a new Zion. The old Zion was not meant to be a destination. It was a signpost pointing us forward to the glorious eternal Zion, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a wonderful thing about the church. The church is a new home. The new Zion of God. It is made up, as I said, of those chosen by God and given new life through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is amazing about the church is that God has not just built the church, it dwells in the church. Paul says this, isn't it, in Ephesians 2, verse 22. Ephesians 2 verse 22 says this, In him you also are being built together into what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I just want you to pause on that. That God dwells in this church. Because sometimes we forget how precious the church is. The person sat next to you, if he or she belongs to God, she has trusted in Christ, is the home of God on earth. You need to ponder and take that in. Because the world is searching for God, right? And God's answer is that I'm already among you. I have come through the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in those who have surrendered their lives to me. 
And the tragedy, beloved, is that many who profess faith in Jesus are like the Reverend Timothy Lovejoy. You know intellectually that God has taken up residence in the hearts of his church, right? Of his people. But you do not deep down believe this is true. It hasn't gripped your heart. I mean, how do I know that? Because I know that because if you believe that God was a resident in the hearts and minds of his people, in the hearts of his people, in this church, not this building, in the people here that is a church, you treasure, you would treasure other believers more because the communicable attributes of God his love, his patience, his goodness, his wisdom, you'd know that all of these things have been deposited in children of God. You, you, you would go to other believers. Why? Because you know by talking to them, you'll find the wisdom that God himself has deposited in, in, in them through his Holy Spirit. Now, now we are not gods. God, but God lives in us. We are still creatures. But God has chosen to deposit this surpassing treasure, that is the Holy Spirit himself, so to speak, in jars of clay, in us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. It is amazing, isn't it? That I look, as I look at Sister Danny there, God lives in her. As I look at Brother Andrew, God lives in him. I think what that makes, should make me do is should make me treasure my brother more. It should make me look past his age. The age is fine, brother. <laughs> it should make me look past his color of skin. It should make me look past his social income background. I should recognize here is a brother in Christ. Because Christ in him, the hope of glory. What is real about my brother is not any of his external stuff. It is that God has chosen him to live in him. And so when Brother Andrew comes to me, I must be willing to hear his counsel. Why? Because God lives in him. And if he's praying and looking to God, I know what he's going to say. Yes, he's human, he's going to fall, he's going to sin, etc. But I'm going to first have to listen and then compare with the word. I'll give him a listening ear. And when he's fallen down, sorry to use you, brother, when, when he stumbles, I'll be patient. Because there's hope for him, isn't there? Because God lives in him. Do you see how this truth begins to transform relationships that we have? Because when things are not going well for those who are in Christ, we, we, we beloved, when things are not going well in our lives, we don't even need to, we don't need to run from the church. Quite the opposite. You know, when people are going through trouble, what they do is they don't come to church. They don't come to meet with other believers. The church, of course, is people. They do that, don't they? But you see the folly of that. The folly is that God lives in the church. Of course they can pray to him directly, but God has chosen to be specially present with the church. And so when we are going through trouble, where we need to be most is among with believers. Because God dwells among his people. Do you see? The problem is we know what the church is. But that's all we know intellectually. 
The problem is that you only know it in the head. What the church is. It doesn't grab you. And maybe we've just become used to this idea of listening that God lives in us. The other day I was, uh, you know, some years back, I, I bought a TV, right? Uh, one of these 48 inch screen television, which I, now since I became a pastor, I have no time for watching it. But I did buy it, and um, when I first bought it, it was wonderful. Wow, 48 screen. And I think it was, I think it became 52 or something. So it was quite wide. This is why some of you have visited us, you've seen it. It was wonderful. I couldn't, when I left work, I couldn't wait to watch this thing. I just thought, it's so amazing. Star Trek, wow. You know, Jean-Luc Picard, I could see Commander Data and everything. It was wonderful watching Star Trek on this thing. But, as time passed on, I just, it just looked small and small and small. It just looked like ordinary. And you know, the other day I was driving past at the drop of Abigail at um, the, the school in Old Bexley, Old Bexley. And as I parked, I could see across the road a house. And the curtains were open. And the man was watching TV, right? And my goodness, like, his screen was like large. And I thought to myself, I, thought, I turned to Eunice, I said, yeah, imagine if I had a TV like that. That would be so awesome. But then immediately I remembered, of course my TV used to look like that. There was a time at which I was so amazed by its size. I realized that I'd become used to my television. It was quite wide, and to somebody who doesn't have that size, they still aspire to have a TV that size, I guess, if they love large television. I think you can buy them quite cheaply now. My point is that no matter, we, we are people who get used to things. What once amazed us, even if I bought that large screen TV now, I'm sure I have no money to buy it. But if I did, you gave me a gift, but all right. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't, uh, uh, next birthday, right? I, I wouldn't, I'll, I'll get tired of it. It will look small again. Televisions are like that. And I wonder whether that's how we are with the church, isn't it? Have we become too used to the church? That we forget what is amazing and profound about the church? which is God dwells among us. That is an amazing thing. And what we need to do is to ask God to help us treasure this mind-boggling truth. Because this fellowship as a church is a new home built for God to live in. Here's the final quick truth, just I'll be brief really. The final truth we learn here is that the church is a new home, not just a new home built by God in Christ, is our first point, and a new home for God to live in, which is our second point, but it's a new home built to serve God, right? The, the, the purpose of the church is that it should serve God himself. Look at this, 4 and this um, uh, 5 there. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, he taught them that he had saved them in order to make them what? A kingdom of priests. And we read about this in Exodus, actually. Exodus 19 verse 1 to 6. I'll just read that briefly. Exodus 19 verse 1 to 6. This is what we read. It says, on the third New moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidahim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. 
There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Why have I read that? I just want to remind you that Israel was called by God to minister before God in worship on one hand and to be his witnesses to a sinful rebellion. If you are really interested in this, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it afterwards. But essentially, Israel was chosen as a second Adam to be a priest before God, to image God in the world. Israel was meant to be a model of what it means to live with God and to treat each other in a genuine human ways and to be good stewards of the earth. That's why God gave them the law, as it were. Ministry to God and ministry to the people. Each Israelite was meant to be like that. The world was meant to look at Israel and say, wow, that God is with them. I want to know this God. I want to worship this God. But the story of Israel is that they broke the covenant with God. But the good news of Jesus is that in the breaking of the covenant, God established an, a new covenant in Jesus. Jesus has come as the new Israel, so to speak. The church now is a new kingdom of priests now. That brings in Jews and Gentiles now. And we are now share the responsibility with Christ to represent the world before God, so to speak. To be God's representative in the world. And that means two things I'll talk about this evening. First of all, it means we're to be a worshipping community that offers our lives to God. That is our spiritual sacrifices, praise and prayers to God. And the second thing is that we're to be a witnessing community that serve God by actively pointing others to him. And we'll explore those issues in the sermon this evening as we look at 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 10. I just want to end by concluding that the main lesson for us today, is that all true followers of Jesus, those who have truly surrendered to Jesus, are now the new home of God. But remember, only true followers. The church is not made up of dead stones. It's made up of only living stones. People who have genuinely surrendered their lives to Jesus. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, you can come and be part of this thing, but you're not Part, yet part of the church. You can be in a family with a, with, a, with a father that trusts in Christ, but if you haven't yourself trusted in Christ, you are still a dead stone. Only mom or dad is a living stone. So this cuts across families. You can be in a class at school. If there are other kids who trust in Jesus, they are part of a living stone. Others are dead stones. The world is made up of only two stones. Dead stones or living, precious, chosen stones. And the opportunity for you today is to you to look at your life. Are you a living stone? Have you come to faith in Jesus? Have you surrendered to him? And if you haven't, then surrender to him. Be part of this amazing work of God. 
If you have surrendered to Jesus, remember you are a new home built for God to live in. You are a new home built to serve God as his priest. You are part of his true church. And we can apply all of these truths to our own individual lives. Because if God lives in us, beloved, then there is hope in whatever situation we are facing. As we go out to work, we are going out to work not as dead stones, but as living stones connected to the redemptive work of God in Christ. And for us as a church, what it means is that as we start a new church, well, we must rejoice and tremble. Rejoice and tremble, those are the two things. We rejoice because, what an amazing thing, to be part of God's work on earth. How wonderful it is to be part of his church. But trembling, I tremble because I know God is here. I tremble when I don't love my brother all. I tremble because I might not treat him as God wants me to treat him. I tremble that I may make mistakes for God's, in front of God's people. Fear and trembling is always there. But in the middle of this is joy, isn't it? Joy that God has deposited his surpassing treasures in jars of clay. And that fills us with hope as a church, as excited hope as we move forward.